Hi, I'm Kate. And I'm Mandy. And this is Love Sober, the podcast for the sober and sober curious. Hi there and welcome back to Love Sober, the podcast for the sober and sober curious. And uh, I'm on my own today because uh, Kate and I are taking turns to interview some very exciting guests um, with a little project that we've been invited to help on, which is raising kind of um, awareness and um, people's knowledge about ICAD. And ICAD is um, an amazing uh, organization and international conference and today I'm um, delighted to be uh, welcoming Sam Quinlan who is the founder and um, so before we get into sort of what ICAD is and um, if you could tell everyone about, a little bit about it just how are you Sam how are you doing and welcome to the show. Hi Mandy it's so good to be here. Thanks for inviting me on today. Um, I've been really enjoying watching as the your sober movement is kind of moving forward and it's exciting and it's just so good to see so many people connecting and supporting each other. So it's a real privilege to be here. I'm good. I'm, I'm really good. I'm enjoying myself. I've uh, just returned from a great vacation and uh, gearing up for half term, which starts tomorrow. And um, yeah, just bracing myself for whatever taxi service or needs my teenage daughter might need. And, uh, you know, and I'm sure we'll get into that, but that's one of the great gifts of being sober today gives me is the ability to be present for her. So fingers crossed, it's going to be a good half term. Oh, fantastic. And so you're based in the UK, right? I am based in the UK. I do an awful lot of traveling uh, all around the world, actually. Uh, um, and that's through through work, through all the uh, conferences that we do with ICAD. And um, I can be at any one time, maybe in Iceland or Paris or America. Um, luckily enough, uh, we are connecting as much as we can and making as much of a movement of awareness um, around um, the topics that we cover. So, yes, I am based in Cheltenham in Gloucestershire when I'm not travelling the world. <laughs> Which is a place dear to my heart because I grew up uh, in Stroud. So I know Cheltenham very, very well. Um Okay, so we, we're going to sort of talk in two parts, really. So talk a little bit about your story and about um, your own recovery journey, if that's okay. And then kind of talk about um, ICAD and, and the work you were doing there, which I have to say, you know, we were feel incredibly grateful to be involved. And, you know, it's a real privilege for us too to be able to sort of big up your work because it is, and also the kind of direction that you're taking in opening it up to kind of bigger audiences because it is that crossover between kind of the medical profession and the service users and the coaches and the people in the middle and you know kind of bringing everyone together so I'm really excited to talk about that but first I wanted just to ask you a little bit about your own kind of sobriety uh, journey if that's okay of course uh, what brought what brought you to the decision to go alcohol free mm. It's a big question, really. And, uh, <laughs> you, you know, the decision, 
Um, the decision was a long time coming. Making that choice was a long time coming. I, you know, I really did battle um, with the final decision um, for many years. Um, you know, it it's a sad story in as much as um, by the time I was twenty, uh, I had a big alcohol problem and I had struggled in boarding school and subsequently in my um in my college um and the one word I suppose that comes up for me is that through school and through college so what we would say places of kind of authority I felt like I was an absolute failure and the word failure was something that stayed with me a long time and I think my drinking um and then that followed subsequently by other substances really started to snowball in my 20s. Um, and I would make decisions probably on a daily basis mm. back then that I wasn't going to do it again when I woke up uh you know, at whatever time of day after being on a bender or after, you know, a dinner party where I'd done all the preparation early in the day and then was too kind of pissed to be able to actually sit through the dinner party. Um, I'd make the decision very often that it was going to stop um, and I was going to manage it or I was going to try not to drink during the week or I try not to drink until six o'clock in the evening and I spent so much energy thinking and making kind of bargaining um, bargains with myself um, so the decision would get bigger and bigger and bigger the bargaining would get bigger and bigger until a point at which it didn't seem to matter what was sort of falling away uh, and that included friends um, opportunities um, quality of life I think for me the final decision came about when actually I started to lose my work and started to lose the ability to survive, which means really to earn money, um, that it got really serious. Um, and the decision to ask for help came when I was probably about 27 and then various different times over the next five years um, I would ask for help and then I'd retract it I'd ask for help and then I'd go no it's okay it's okay um, and I think when I was around about 31 was when I finally made the decision that I was going to commit and get help um, so it's a long time coming yeah. So, I mean, I'm interested in a couple of points there, because obviously one of the conversations we've had and is this 
kind of question of early intervention and how can we you know help people earlier and how can we sort of make sobriety positive so you know when when it is back at that point of you know I'd say what was it 27 I suppose which is the first time you asked for help or even earlier than that you know when you started to moderate and you started to try and control your drinking I mean can you see any way like retrospectively looking back how there could have been a point where you could have changed your behavior earlier or you know was there any sort of I don't know how how could how can we get to those people at that point when they start questioning it I so I think there's a couple of pointers in there um, that I, I, really interesting in as much as and I was reflecting on this um, this, this morning when I was having another look through the questions. Um, I would say that uh, back then there were no um, social sites um, such as I would like to be more sober or get sober. Um, there were no social forums um, to be able to get support um, such as Love Sober. They didn't exist. Um, and so that's a large part, I think, that you are playing um, in being accessible to people that feel isolated. On another point, I did go to my doctor, but my doctor was not informed. My doctor didn't have the tools or resources and actually put me on medication for depression. Back then, there was so much stigma towards um, I suppose being labelled an alcoholic, um, you didn't want it on your record. You didn't want it um, to exist in any any form of record. So, I was very much going to a doctor and saying, you know, I'm really depressed. I need help. How can you help me? In the beginning, by the end, I was going to the doctor and saying, I, you know, I. I cannot get sober myself. I think I am at this point an alcoholic. Can you help? And um, the, there were early interventions. There were, I, in Gloucestershire, there was GDAS that I went to. Um, I went to uh, some self-help meetings, but I, it, it, you know, I wasn't in the beginning ready to go to those self-help groups and go, um, I'm an alcoholic. Um, mm. But I do think in going to them and hearing other people were struggling, um, it gave me uh, an opportunity to talk to other people, to say hello to other people. I've got a problem. Not, I wasn't ready to really ask for help. I was trying to inform myself on how I could help myself very silently and quietly. But it was the beginning um, of knowing that there was limited help out there. And it, in turn, actually, it is where I returned to when I was ready to say, um, I believe that I am an alcoholic. Yeah, and it's interesting because that's kind of how we've 
you know, we've talked a lot about kind of 12 step and the importance for it and then the non-accessibility for certain people, you know, and there is this kind of labeling issue, which I do think is changing. And, you know, I know people that that go that are in the fellowship that don't say they're an alcoholic. Um, and, and I think you can do that now, you know, um, but it's interesting that there is kind of a moment where that is a release. And, you know, what we're trying to kind of talk about is this kind of scale of addiction. And it's like, you know, there there might be, I mean, my my best friend's mother was an alcoholic. You know, there was no denial in her. She wasn't, she knew how dependent she was on alcohol, you know, whereas I've been accused of being in denial because I say I wasn't an alcoholic, you know, but it's, it's, I know I was on the way, but I don't think I was there yet and thank goodness I found sort of online support and forums and all those things beforehand Mm. because I managed to stop before and you know I've no sort of uh, I I don't think I'm any different I just got I got off the train you know earlier so I think that labeling can be really it can feel very freeing very valid but it's not freeing and valid for all people uh, which we certainly struggled against with certain groups (laughs) and so when you finally you know made that and asked for help and you wanted to quit you know you said that was at 31 yeah so then where did you get support and, and what was your kind of methodology for recovery um so I started by going to see a counsellor um a therapist um I tried um uh the count that worked really well um the counselor I went and had hypnotherapy um that didn't work so well um I tried um I tried CBT I think the thing is um all of these are there's so many valid forms of kind of therapeutic support and that's not to say that the your forum isn't a therapeutic support it it is you know any relational opportunity where you can forge uh, a relationship with someone or a group of people that can have empathy can offer support can offer appropriate challenge and can offer uh, a new perspective that may may be something that you can do and can also acknowledge that actually you are the expert in your own life is a therapeutic intervention. I, I, I think I, I feel very safe in saying that and no one size fits uh, all for sure. We're all different and we're all at different stages um, and at different stages something didn't work for me and then further on it did work for me um, because I was at a different stage in kind of getting into what I would call um, you know a sober recovery there is no denying that I today I'm not a full-blown alcoholic but I was a full-blown alcoholic and drug addict Mm. um and so for me through counseling um I accessed um a local support group in Gloucestershire called GDAS um and um we did uh sort of harm minimizing reduction reduction um which would work for a 
small amount of time and then I'd go on a massive binge like I'd been storing it all up and in the end after kind of much coming and ahhing um, I went into a residential treatment centre down in Western Supermare and Mm -hmm. I went there for two months and funnily enough the reason why I decided to go for two months was because I found that my drinking and using escalated around my monthly um, menstruation cycle. So um, I would go absolutely Fruit Loop crazy around that time. So I actually wanted to be somewhere for a period of time that could help me um, look at that 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 time um, and see why that was and I was interested in seeing what kind of triggers that created and I think that did help um that's really interesting yeah Yeah. um and and actually there is I mean because we were reading about it um in terms of sort of your estrogen levels and your progesterone levels there is something in that in that you are more prone to kind of maladaptive behavior at different points in your cycle so but the, the fact that you sort of recognize that I find really really interesting I really did I mean I would just energetically that would be the time that I would really not be able to sit with myself and like really fix my you know just like want to be totally oblivious um, and create chaos um, and to be perfectly honest, kind of cutting all the way forward, interesting time right, has been in my menopause now, kind of going all the way to being 50 now uh, and being sober and in recovery um, has been managing um, some of the issues that I've had around my menopause and mentally dealing with, uh, you know, anxiety, um dealing with you know hot flushes almost feeling Mm. like panic attacks and the fogginess and feeling mentally um a little bit unbalanced so that's been interesting so I think there is definitely something in that but back then yeah I went into residential treatment when I came out of there um I went to and really found found some my people I suppose my tribe through going to uh, some of the 12-step fellowships um, and I also carried on with having a, um, a counsellor and I still to this day um, will go to meetings but I still have uh, counselling um, when I need it for kind of big life events um, that might have happened or have happened um, and I also you do other um, various retreats and uh, restorative workshops um, I suppose because I I'm also part of a movement that is involved in this area that I have access to all sorts of phenomenal um, Mm -hmm. experts that I go, oh, I'd like to go on that. I'd like to go on an immersive retreat for this or so um, it it's accessible to me um, and is part of my support today. I worked through the 12 steps and I still practice um, those steps. You know, for me, 
uh, unpacking those, um, you know, they're very uh, sort of CBT, cognitively behavioral, um, they're a cognitive behavioral model. Um, some of the yeah. practical steps are very CBT based. Uh, some of the spiritual steps are very mindfulness based. Um, so you, you can kind of unpack it and use what you need. Um, but yeah. Uh, yeah, I mean, that's certainly what we've found yeah. kind of from a, 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 a less kind of, you know, taking out the the God question or, you know, that that side of things or the, the higher power, which I do think is very useful for people that have had, you know, addictions or dependency is like there is that essence by for me I found that quite just like I don't want to give away my power or you know I'm in control and I and so I think that there is that part of it that that can be quite challenging for people in early intervention sort of things but certainly if you look at the um, science of happiness or positive psychology there's so much of the steps which are you know about mindfulness and about gratitude and about forgiveness and self-compassion and all the things that we talk about so um it's certainly well i mean it's it can be hugely helpful for lots and lots of people and what i find really interested about what you're saying is um and i think this comes up for a lot of people that are in our group is that they think that because you're kind of life feels bad you think you know you're going to get sober and you're going to be fixed and it's like sobriety is the anchor which is I always say it's like you know it's like the bridge across the cavern it's like you've still got to keep going and you've got to keep working at sort of you know emotional intelligence and and adding in things and going to get your sort of be supported with counseling therapy etc but you're just not falling down the chasm you know and it's that kind of it's it's what keeps you level enough so that you can kind of support yourself um and one of the greatest things is that we get to do all this personal development work but it's not always easy you know it's not like it doesn't fix things but it just it helps to anchor you into your real life i suppose absolutely i mean i think um you know, my biggest uh, area of sort of personal growth has been into learning what the kind of baggage that I, you know, I, I've brought with me um, into my adult life um, um, sort of my not my uh, how do i how do i put it it's like being sober for me is sober kind of thinking and um i can be very glass half empty as opposed to glass half full um i can have really black um days um i can give myself a really hard time on top of what is you know everyday occurrences and you know are just existential things that happen to us which is you know grief is loss of relationships you know death divorce um being a parent 
um, you know, all of those triggers. I, I have to have um, resources and a toolkit that I can go to and what I would call a nurturing network that can support me that will then give me enough space to breathe not react and then I can go okay what do I need to do in this instance and I mean one of the one of the greatest little simplest uh, tools I was given um, was in getting to that place of being able to not be reactive and to just breathe is to say, what's my name? And to repeat my name, my name's Sam Quinlan. How old am I? I'm 50 years old. And what am I doing? I'm doing the best that I can. And that gives me an opportunity to just kind of remember who I am, remember how old I am, because I can kind of go into a, being a reactive teenager or being a scared child. Or, and so to remember how old I am and to kind of just acknowledge I'm doing the best I can just is kind of quite calming. So, oh, I love it. It's yeah. one of my, it, it, it's one of my go-tos. And then that gives me a foundation then to maybe get a bit more complex, depending on what's been put in front of me, to become a bit more complex and to maybe ring um, my sponsor or to kind of put some notes down, do some writing so that I've got it there for the next time I speak to my therapist or for me to go, I need to go to a meeting, um, you, you know, and I need to be around my tribe, whether or not that's an online meeting or it's going to a fellowship meeting um, or it's going for a cup of coffee. I, you know, I, I have to have my nurturing network around me. I love that. Yeah. And it's, you know, what we've I've certainly identified as and I see it all the time in the group, it's like people talk about, you know, well, I could phone, you know, my mother. And it's like, well, do do you want, is that someone that's on your A-team? Like, is that the person that is nurturing for you? And it's like, well, she'll get on at me about this and say, I should do this. And it's like, well, you know, maybe go get your haircut. Like maybe your hairdresser is part of your A-team, you know, because they, they talk to you in a nurturing and kind way. And it's not necessarily who we think it it should be, you know, or it could be complete strangers or just being in the, I mean, I've noticed a lot recently because I work from home and I'm often on my own, mm. how much I miss out on just everyday interactions with people. Um, and I really noticed that last time I was in London that, you know, it was very overwhelming and I'm, I got really, really tired. But when I was out and about, I could, yes, there were nasty things that I could look at, but there were also really sweet, nice things of just, you know, talking to the cashier or nice people on the tube or, you know, just, just being around people. So I notice that a lot if I, if I go to yoga, if I go to a group session or if I do it on my own, you know, it's because we're all there together. Mm. I mean, I guess that's what people get out of church if you're religious. It's a sense that you're there, but you're not competing in a kind of social sense. You're mm. just there together, which is lovely. And I, I imagine it's exactly the same. 
yeah you know in 12 st- in meetings you know just and listening to people's stories I find incredible um so you talked a little bit about your sort of self-care s- toolkit so is there anything practical in terms of I don't know food or physical exercise or you know the way boundaries or anything else that you you do or you can identify that you that help you you know to kind of yeah absolutely I you know um I uh, there's a great uh uh sort of trauma somatic trauma um therapist called Babette Roth Babette Rothschild um and she wrote a book called um the body remembers and I think you're you're really hitting on a key point we hold all of our traumatic experiences um however small a t they are or however large a t they are for trauma we hold it all in our body um and it's so important uh to really um bring the whole self in so for me um i love dancing um dancing for me is a large part um of um feeling um centered and balanced i also do uh boxing um which i find really good for keeping my brain kind of active and remembering how to do different sparring things and it's good for uh you know my body toning um i i suppose with food um, interestingly enough, having been like involved in performing arts and being at dance school, um, you, you know, I have a very uh, sensitive uh, reaction to my uh, level of weight and my appearance. Um, and that ties in very much with uh, having a good relationship with myself. Um, mm. So I try to be mindful around what I eat Um, and I think as we move further and further into looking at how we become sustainable um, and how we complement not only the environment but uh, ourselves in the community is you know being really uh, knowledgeable of what we're eating and how it affects us and how it affects the the wider community and the environment um, is it's almost like, yes, you know, it's such a shame that it's happened, but now is the opportunity to go, well, if I have a balanced diet, if I don't eat too much meat, if I don't eat too many preserved or ready-made, you know, if I look at how I eat, I'm supporting the environment as well. So I'm expanding uh, as we sort of speak on how to do better in that and also better myself in it. Um, there's a guy called Philip Weeks who I've worked with for years on kind of energy work, acupuncture, something I haven't mentioned, but I have regular acupuncture, not so much for my, um, uh, sobriety or to do with my, uh, you, you know, uh, 
recovery from substances, more to do with actually recovery um, from uh, chronic fatigue and some of the sort of, um, what would I say, uh, the side effects of um, having been, I was a live kidney donor back in uh, 2008, which actually for this recovering person to be able yeah. to do that and yeah, to donate my amazing. kidney was yeah. like frigging phenomenal um yeah in you know uh, it was a miracle that I was able to do it considering my history but I you know chronic fatigue so I have acupuncture I have to be careful about what I eat and things like that and then when I got into my menopause I feel like the menopause puts this microscope on any of our weaknesses that we've had through our kind of adult life and goes, right, I'm really going to focus in on this kind of weakness in this area. And it magnifies it. So um, my fatigue was huge during the kind of first year of my menopause. So, yeah. Um, I'm looking forward to that. <laughs> Yeah, and it's really interesting that this this has come up because this is something that you know, um, you know, Kate's perimenopause. I'm sure she won't mind me saying perimenopausal, and we have a lot of women in our group. And it's this kind of when we're talking about why we need conversations for women um, about well-being is because you know the female experience is so incredible, but full of trauma. You know, sort of physical body trauma, and you do have these cycles and and these are big shifts you know in terms of of it's kind of reinventing yourself again it's like you know you go from being a young person and then you go through puberty and then you become a mother you know and that's such a huge change and then you know then you go through the menopause and then you're you're no longer that role that you've held is has changed and you know and I think they are kind of pinnacle moments probably you could study through women's drinking that there are kind of these um what's the word kind of um key points I think mm-hmm. you know stress and change that can be very impactful certainly on mental health and and then kind of problematic drinking um so yeah I, I can imagine it's it's pretty tough um because it just I mean I can remember with my mum she it, it threw her emotions all over the place so mm. I'm not quite there yet <laughs> no well you, you know you've got time to kind of get yourself all prepared yeah. and I you know and and that's it isn't it it's preparation 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 yeah yeah and it is and and but I always come back to that well thank god I'm sober though because you know at least I've got so many different kind of things in my toolkit that can be sort of transferable skills if you know what I mean yeah so yeah you know um okay so and just so tell me how many years sober are you now 18 oh amazing well done Uh, 18 um sometimes my my head uh, and I, I think this is important, and you touched on it earlier. It's that, you know, sometimes my head doesn't feel very sober, but I am sober. Um, you know, my kind of stinking thinking. Um, mm. And I, I have to remember to give myself a, a break. And 
you know, sometimes my behaviours aren't brilliant, but I think people always go as a default to going, you know, what does your road rage look like? Um, what does your um, patience look like? Um, and it's, you know, there's all the triggers. Uh, tired, lonely, um, you know, those kind of things. Uh, sleep is huge, actually. Um uh, for me, so making sure that I sleep well, my try and manage my sleep patterns really well. Uh, yeah, but yeah, way. that's that's how that's how many years, and um, uh, it's been a you know it's been a me. I've been sober for the entirety of my daughter's uh, life, um, but I'd say I've had to really work hard to be able to be present for her as an adult and especially as she hits it, um, has hit the kind of teens herself and struggled with her own issues around um, emotions and all the different hormones um, and being a single parent um also you don't have the big household to break the dynamic or to go into a kind of you know a drama triangle which whether or not it's good or bad it breaks it um it breaks the dynamic that you've just got between two individuals so um my personal growth today is very much about being present in my adult and um the older i get uh, the more I see patterns and familiarities that I didn't think are, and I don't think are mine and that maybe I have picked up and brought with me from my parents or from their parents and being able to go, well, actually, that's not my truth today. Um, and uh, I choose to do things differently. I think our family of origin um, has a lot to do with um and working on our family of origin and maybe looking at some trauma reduction dependent on our um our experience um is really vital in being yeah. present as a uh, as a, a the best version of my adult self can be if that makes and sense I, yeah and it does and and I what I what I like is that the, the conversation has kind of shifted to look at further than just, you know, our mothers, but look back, you know, let's look back through the generations and kind of understand, you know, like th th there's no blame, there's no kind of shame. It's just these are the things that different people have experienced and we've all taken through a little part of that. But, you know, we can all be present enough to decide what what's right for us and what's our true value and our true north and and then leave the other bits aside so absolutely yeah, and you know I think that that's really important what you say Mandy um uh we don't want to repeat the cycle of shame or blame or any of that and I think trauma trauma work uh resolution work um uh higher consciousness work um is to do with you know having an awareness and then having an acceptance it happened um and the ability to move through it and to move on um and uh to be able to as as the ex 
because we are experts of our own life and to be able as an expert to kind of rewrite what progress looks like and what we what we want for ourselves in in the future um and not to completely uh, keep going round in sort of um you know negative behavior patterns or negative blame patterns um it's about acceptance and going it happened and to the best ability being able to also feel really um to really empathize with what our uh, our f- the members that have gone before us are you know our parents our grandparents our you know ancestors what they experienced and to um have empathy towards that they actually probably they did do the best that they could and it may have been really shit but um yeah. And and some people may go, you don't know what I experienced, and I'm I'm not there yet. But there's a lot to be said for the work that's been going on, um, and I I'm not so much part of it. I'm quite lucky, but you know the forgiveness projects, uh, combat uh, resolution, uh, mediation, all of those areas. There's so much to be said for that because I think it means that we can like let go of the baggage and we can. find a bit of forgiveness um and also I think it's situational you know I mean it's certainly there's we had a discussion about this a couple of weeks ago about kind of mum shame and about sort of the reliance on attachment theory kind of methodologies and and you know we we understand that that's all part of it and it's an important part but it's like you need to you know, we're living in the modern age where people don't have support systems and where women are, you know, doing various kind of care role um, jobs and working and, you know, don't have that. So it's like rather than kind of centering on, well, well, it's the mum's fault. It's like, well, let's look at the society as a whole and the support that they have because they're not able to do the jobs properly because you know the system essentially is letting them down mm-hmm. and you know instinctively you know like I would say 99% of of mums want to do the best job you know but, um, you know is it they don't always have the tools or the know-how or the situation or the money or whatever or the you know the imprint from their own childhood to to manage that so rather than focusing everything on on the decisions that they make and the impact that has on kids let's kind of look you know where's the dads um and everyone else that should sort of be part of the conversation essentially I just wanted to ask you about your with your daughter if you don't mind um this is also another question we get a lot in groups is how to talk to children that are I mean, you don't need to talk about your daughter because it's obviously her private life. But in general, I mean, how do we talk to children about drugs and alcohol, um, being a sober parent? And do you have any sort of thoughts on that? How to? uh, Well, I I suppose I've been quite fortunate in as much as it's been part of my work and it's been very prevalent in her life um, for 
many years and there is a dialogue in it but it doesn't mean that at times I don't feel completely detoured. One, I tell you one of the best pieces of advice I was given about talking to my daughter um, was do it while sitting in a car a stationary mm. car when you're sat side by side it's actually quite a good time to sit and 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 chat um and i do it bit by bit and i'm given little windows and i have learned that to push my agenda gets me nowhere um and she may give me attention for one minute or five minutes and in that time um I need to try and be very succinct in what I'm saying, not be agenda driven and to just um, also really listen. Uh, and not be scared to ask the questions, to get pushed back and to leave it. Because my experience is if I get pushed back, and I and I leave it. She comes back to me, uh, and may fulfil that conversation sometime later, um, and may broach a subject that she wasn't feeling that she could talk about um, a bit later. Um, mm. I think another thing is teenagers have secrets. Accept it. Teenagers do have secrets. That is part of um, that's part of their coming of age. Teenagers push boundaries. Um, that's part of coming to to age and to choose my battles wisely. Um, it, it was another um, you know godsend of a, um, a advice, and I have. Where possible, when I can afford to, I will have a therapy session around um, the the triggers that I might have had. Or mm. because I come from very much a low self-worth, that's part of my makeup. And um, that's part of my codependency. That's part of my pro-dependency, whatever you want to call it. It's part of my my makeup is that I have a low self-worth and I probably value people's opinions too much and therefore I need to be careful not to put that onto a child, my child, yeah. any child. Um, and I definitely had that when I had, uh, you know, lived with my stepsons. Um, a need to be valued for them to to feed me with... Um, self-worth and to tell me I was great and I was okay I today I managed not to need and I get my support from elsewhere it's not for my child to support me um, yes and that's I been a that's... really big learning for me yeah thank you it's that's really really interesting just before we start talking about ICAD I just wanted to talk about the equine therapy um, <laughs> yeah so could you tell people, because I, I mean, Kate's not here, which is a real shame because she she would have loved this conversation. And um, and I know she, she'll be interested in that. So 
are you still involved in that or the tell us a little bit about yeah yeah leap is still going i'm not so involved i'm not involved in it now i'm a big big advocate of it and uh, ambassador of it um and if i you know i founded that um based upon my own experience which was when i was absolutely on the floor and not in any way uh, talking to myself and uh, when I was really toxic, um, I had always loved, uh, horses, but I couldn't go anywhere near them. I couldn't, I felt like I felt scared. I felt, you know, they don't like me, uh, you, you know, all of these negative negatives. And I, you know, I do believe animals are, uh, a real mirror to the soul and something about horses probably because their kind of family system is similar to ours and because they are so vulnerable if you look at them in their in their place of um uh, in their natural environment uh, they are probably one of the most vulnerable um animals um and what they have is the the flight mechanism um but uh, yeah, they are windows to the soul, and y you know it's always interesting because it's like no, don't like horses. No, they don't like me. Um, or they're scary. You know things like that. So I think, um, it made sense that this movement was created so kind of so many years ago of horses helping humans, um, and uh, horses have been helping humans for centuries, obviously, but mainly in in combat and in work. Um, and so I, I kind of knew that they were going to have a large part in, uh, my getting to know who I was and also, um, more so than I ever imagined looking at bringing up, um, my inability to process things or my inability to work through situations without wanting a quick fix or questioning my capability or my insight or intuition. They were huge, huge in, um, processing that and I think you know equine for families equine for young people and, and I'm not just talking in the with regards to being sober I'm meaning from a, a much more mental health based foundation of if you want a really good experience of beginning to trust the process of listening to how how you function um doing equine therapy is great and what you see happening with horses and young people that suffer maybe from you know uh ADHD or, or on the autistic spectrum um i mean you don't even need to put into words you just see it happening it's absolute magic um so i'm passionate about equine um for all manner of issues um probably the the most intense uh work i did was with uh children in need for a year we ran ran a program i devised a program put together for young people that had been labeled or put into care for uh inappropriate sexual behaviors and obviously they were all under the age of 18 um and most of them themselves had been victims and 
So we put together this program that lasted for a year and session seven was always the magic session between these young people and the horses and the environment. We had yurts, we had big open ground, but we put groups together. We brought them out of the isolating environments they were being kept in and we put them in a group. Lots of us took loads of paperwork, loads of red tape, uh, it was exhausting, but it was beautiful. But session yeah. seven was the magic session. And the key to it was that they forgave themselves. They tapped into self-compassion. And you, uh, you and I have touched on this all the way through, that whether or not we go and give ourselves a, a hair appointment, whether or not we do something like a yoga class, whether or not we we put the money aside to have therapy for these young people we had to find a way that we could help them tap into self-compassion and forgiveness um, so that they could stop repeating the cycle of shame and blame and that they could exit and start to build a better life with hope um, and it was amazing kind of wells me up yeah I was gonna say I'm feeling quite emotional over here yeah, yeah. amazing um, and and the horses you know and you have to be mindful of making sure the horses get what they need um that they don't become the, the you know the dumping ground and that they're worked with and you have a group of people that can look after the well-being of the whole group so it's intensive it's not something that you see happening very often and uh, due to all sorts of different things and it being so expensive and it doesn't have to be expensive it doesn't have to be but for that it was it was like and it was a life-changing experience for all of us that uh, were involved in it oh, um, so yeah that's really interesting for me because I've always been like I don't understand I, I'm that person it's like I don't I understand horses like I don't get why people you know and they're they're big and scary and stuff and I've just written down like add to toolkit horses <laughs> so yeah. and that's what I love it's like you can have a conversation when you're in this space and go oh well maybe there's something there maybe I'm gonna love horses and isn't that exciting like because especially where I live, I see people riding, you know, horses along the beach in the mm -hmm. winter months. Mm -hmm. And I do always think that look, that's a good thing. You know, that's better than being hung over on a Sunday. That's a good thing to be doing with your time. And I think, so, yes. you, I think if you can find somewhere locally that you can support, you know, animal welfare, uh, you know, going and looking after horses and animals, donkeys, dogs, cats. It's something to do with the unconditional positive regard that they have. Um, and, Carl, you know, Carl Rogers writes about the unconditional positive regard, not with regards to animals, but the therapeutic relationship. But it's the unconditional positive regard that they have, the acceptance that with time they will accept touch they will accept being nurtured, that they need to be looked after, that they can't feed themselves. We have to feed them. We have to maintain their, you know, feeding them. Um, and to a point, 
Um, in nurturing animals, we begin to nurture ourselves, our routines, our re regimes, our ability to self-nurture and to eat properly and regulate. It, it, a lot of it can come by doing those um, those things and working with with animals. Oh, wow. Thank you. That's really interesting and something I hadn't considered at all. Um, so, yeah, I'm excited. I'm excited to discover that myself. So on to ICAD. Um, so ICAD London is the 4th, 5th and 6th of May. So um, you are the founder of ICAD. Can you tell me a little bit about what it is and, um, yeah, sort of what, what, how did it start and, and, and what is it? I, it started as um, a different conference, um, and I have to acknowledge that there is an um, incredible uh, woman called Deirdre Boyd that was supported by a great board of trustees many, many moons ago that started um, uh, an event that was for uh, looking at addiction um, at abstinence-based and also policy and things like that. Um, and well, I think about in about 2014, um, I took over that organization, did a couple of years with it, and then um, myself and uh, my partners um, decided actually we wanted to sort of change the face and our objectives were different um, and we wanted to look at the whole spectrum of mental health, self-help um, in all different areas uh, at, at, on an international level so that we could all learn from each other. So ICAD was created um, and I think in there is definitely a rumbling of my experience when I was uh, back um, where we started this. And, mm. I, you know, I was at performing arts school and I did not have a nurturing environment on which to develop and blossom. And my life's objective is about providing nurturing platforms when I created the Brighton and Hove Fringe Festival having gone to Edinburgh and seen the Edinburgh Fringe Festival went back to Brighton and went we need to do this here we need to have a nurturing environment for artists performers uh you know for different communities to be able to to learn and to give and perform and to feel acceptance and to feel a buzz. And, you know, it's not dissimilar. ICAD is not dissimilar. It is a platform, a nurturing platform for, for professionals, for families, for people that are coming into the field, for teachers, for lawyers. My belief is, and I wrote this long, long kind of story that one one of my team Minta said no 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 Sam this is like so long and so babbling but you know there's that expression it takes a village to raise a child yeah um well I believe it takes a village to to carry an individual through their life through their existential life experience and that includes therapeutic professionals, communities, teachers, lawyers, uh, um, accountants, family members, um, you, you know, all of those 
have huge relational um, involvement with one individual. And I think um, that bringing people across platforms, I don't like to silo. I don't like to go, there's only one way or the highway. I believe that bringing in, you know, psychiatrists, doctors, family members, young people, like I said, teachers, um, coaches, practitioners, um, nutritionists, bringing them all into a space um, means that there's an absolute cross-pollination of learning and experience and of getting support or knowing where to refer to and getting the tools and resources. And that's what ICAD is. It's like this wonderful kind of... Well, what's it's like a village industry where it's mm. all going on all sorts of different presentations all sorts of different professionals from all over the world and then the audience which also are you know experts in their various different fields but you can call them general public if you want to are coming in and they're going well, what about this what about that and and there's challenging and there's debating there's learning there's business there's networking it I mean it sounds like chaos and in a wonderful way it kind of is because out of chaos comes comes greatness yeah, yeah. I'm so excited um I absolutely love these <laughs> yes, sort and of you're going to be part of that chaos <laughs> I, I um and I mean I, it was interesting I was on a panel talk in Bristol last weekend actually and um and I asked that question you know that you identified when you went to your doctor that they didn't have the kind of skills or knowledge or in, information about mental health and and alcohol and I did a sort of raise you know show of how how many people had presented to their doctor or to their therapist um and either the well the, the question for those that have been to a therapist was like did they talk about alcohol when you were talking about anxiety and depression and the majority of people said no and you know the question for doc was like when you went to see the doctor about drinking alcohol did did they tell you to moderate your units or did they suggest you stop you know and the majority of the people said that they were told to mo moderate their units so it is it's like that they're, they're to get all these people in a room and go, hang on a second, you know, let's talk about this because, you know, there's mental health practitioners saying one thing and doctors saying another thing. And the person that's missing out in this is, you know, the person that needs help. Mm -hmm. And actually the best person to, to tell you about that is the people, you know, is the general public too, you Absolutely. know, so. Absolutely. It comes back to that. We're all kind of experts, but I also think, especially if we're talking about people um, that, um, you know, may be um, self-medicating at a level of, um, you know, substance or they're self-medicating in some way, they're doing the best that they can. The whole thing about ICAD is it's like, actually, let's talk about, you know, let's talk about other things. Let's talk about how we use, uh, you know, anger. We repeat, we keep in our anger. Why do we keep in our anger? How can we not keep in our anger? How can we talk about, you know, how can we resolve some of our tra trauma? How do we get through our 
frozen moments? Um, how do we deal with grief? How do we deal with, and this is a big one, especially for people that are coaches and are doing things like, like, for example, Love Sober and things where we're supporting. How do we deal with the trauma that is kind of maybe put on us um, or traumatic stuff that we get by sort of default or is deflected on, onto us? How do we manage um, the self-care, you know, maybe if we have acupuncture, maybe if we have look at our nutrition, you know, it, it's, I can really say that ICAD is, you know, there is that underpinning, um, you know, looking at um, addiction because not enough people do talk about it. Um, that is changing. Um, however, it, it it's there. But Actually, it's a big pot of so many other um, talk about issues and also behaviours and resources and tools for so many other things that it's like a one stop shop, really. Well, and what I really, really liked, um, you know, I noticed there's someone, you know, from the LGBTQT plus community sort of talking yeah. about the certain issues of accessing care, you know, and and, and again, for uh, the, you know, with the race issue within, um, you know, um, within the, the the healthcare system as well you know there's all these these different things of 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 representation of of you know of how can i tell my story to someone that has absolutely no representation of of my life experience and and being able to mix all those people up um yeah you know it's absolutely got, i think you've got we've got somebody we've got um someone speaking about uh you know a sober kind of recovery through what it's like for women with mental health we've got ones for men and their mental health and you know how to identify maybe what the triggers are so we've kind of we're trying on every element to have something there for everybody um i mean we're not going to cover everything but i think today the key really is um for us and we go we, we go that much deeper because we also are a continuing professional development so we do supply continuing education units so we have to have learning objectives and we have to have tools and resources to take away which is slightly different from what you would call a kind of well-being expo we go uh, we go deeper and we'll look at policies and we'll look at research and outcomes so it can be really informed but I mean, we're moving into an age where we're responsible for our own medical health records. We are moving to a point of where we are responsible for making choices. And we need to have these spaces like ICAD to be able to come to and go, right, what are the choices available to me? And who are the people that I can speak to? And what's out there? Depend, You know, De depend not dependent on you know our social status not depending on whether or not we're man or a woman or whether or not we're you know what gender we we represent as we, it needs to be there and we need to be having these conversations
No, you can buy day passes. Uh, there's some of the, uh, the um, Eventbrite are doing it. Um, you can book on iCAD.com. And if you go onto iCAD.com as well, there's lots of um, videos and podcasts and blogs that are, they're not behind a paywall um, of any sort. It's a really big resource that's available on there. Um, as well as being able to, you know, find out more about the speakers, book tickets, and the prices, uh, you know, are, are, are pretty good. Um, and we obviously cater for groups, we cater for students, charities, professionals, day, two day, three day. Um, and then there's some some we've got some master classes as well, so you can do just the master classes. Um, and you can turn up on the day. I mean, it's uh, and it's right in it's in Kensington. It's in the Royal Garden Hotel. There's not a feeling of, um, you know, that that again is the uniqueness. People come, psychiatrists come, and they're like, "Well, we thought there'd be like too many general public people, and we'd feel like too sort of, you know, it wasn't the place for us." And they're like, "We love it here. We get to meet with people and talk to people." We had last year and the year before, we had like doctors and nurses running down from Great Ormond Street Hospital to kind of join in because you know they'd heard that there was this great kind of conference. Where everybody was getting together, so we had honestly, it's it, <laughs> it's um it's a good place. It's good. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> to, to keep on going to keep it to definitely kind of keep on going and keep on making it more accessible and reaching out and connecting with more and more you know this to me it's been an honor to kind of have an opportunity to speak um with you guys and keep connecting is the key for me um Well, I kind of, so, like, I read quite a lot about, um, I like Joseph Campbell. I don't know if you've read any of his stuff and um, mythology and kind of all of those things and the hero without a thousand faces. And um, this is kind of, it's just hopeful. It's a quote that I think is great and quite empowering, which is, life is without meaning. You bring the meaning to it. The meaning of life is whatever you ascribe it to be. Being alive is the meaning. And why I like this is because I believe that this is a really, really vital part of early intervention. And um, when when I say to people, you are not alone and help is out there, um, 
it's because of organisations such as yourself that can provide an early intervention, can be a, uh, like put your f- toe in the water and see how it feels. Uh, y- you know, it, it's so important. And um, I hope that, y- you know, I know you're going to be there and you're going to be presenting um, and, and, and talking. And I just really hope that, uh, you know, people take take the risk and go you know what have I got to to risk and come along and and I look forward to hopefully seeing some people there It's a pleasure.